And on top of that, uh, no one had ever introduced me to some of the great thinkers of the faith, uh, whether it's an Augustine or an Anselm or a, a Thomas Aquinas or a John Calvin, and you know the list goes on. When I started to read these individuals, uh, I noticed, well, this is a very different picture of God than, than what I have heard in church. Uh, th- or maybe I've heard good things in church, but this is a God that I've never even seen talked about in church. Uh, so I was very surprised, but pleasantly surprised, a little bit frustrated as to why, why, have, why have I never learned about simplicity or why have I never learned about immutability or impassibility? Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Well, welcome to the Credo Podcast. My name is Thor Madsen. I'm a Dean of Graduate Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Director of the PhD program, and I'm Professor of New Testament Ethics and Philosophy. And today I'm guest hosting the Credo Podcast because I'm interviewing Matthew Barrett, Dr. Matthew Barrett, regarding a book that he's recently written and due to be released quite soon called None Greater, subtitled The Undomesticated Attributes of God. So I welcome the man who normally hosts this podcast to the podcast, Dr. Barrett. Welcome to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Let me start by asking you a question regarding um, the subtitle of your book. It says The Undomesticated Attributes of God. I would assume that you have used that subtitle because you believe that there is a tendency in in, uh, Christian circles to domesticate the attributes of God, and I wonder if you might explain to us what that danger would be. Sure. Yeah. When I reflect on my own experience, I think that's the case, uh, and I think that probably resonates with a lot of uh, Christians out there. Uh, maybe they've grown up in a very good evangelical church, but uh, for a variety of reasons, when we talk about who God is we tend to begin with our own human experience. That can be dangerous uh, because the, we, we might then take what's true in our human experience and then project that back onto God. And we end up with a God who is created in our own image. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's not the creator and we're the creature. Instead, he's a, a glorified version of the creature. Uh, and this is not just at the, the church level. Um, it's also true in academia uh, as well. So uh, maybe there's a philosopher, a theologian, that uh, it, you know, there's many of them who have been so influential, but sometimes they can speak of God uh, in the same category or in the same terms that we would speak of the creature. Uh, to use uh, a phrase that captures this, um, some have called this um, a type of theistic personalism mm-hmm. yep. or a monopolytheism. David as, Bentley Hart uses those terms. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's one who's touched on this. Uh, Brian Davies is another. Mm-hmm. He's interacting more with discussions over uh, Thomas Aquinas. So it, it, a number of figures have used terms like this to say, 
Um, this is a, a very common approach to God, both at the popular level and in academia. Uh, t- take you know monopolytheism, for example. Th- this is a, a type of uh, view of God that uh, sees God much like uh, other religions or, or other uh, mythologies would understand pagan deities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is a God who is who changes. Uh, this is a God who is moved and fluctuates emotionally. This is a God that you can affect uh, in mm-hmm. significant ways. This is a God who may or may not know the future. Uh, this is a God who uh, could be made up of parts in some way or moved by those parts, and, and on the list mm-hmm. goes. Um, it's the the <clears throat> phrase there, mono, is is placed there because, well, in the Christian worldview, we believe in one God. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, right. we take this conception of God and, and we pose it onto mm-hmm. uh, the one God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Very dangerous, very mm-hmm. dangerous, um, both in academia and at the church level because— uh, it tends to paint God as if he's he is a uh, a glorified uh, version of our own attributes, mm-hmm. which assumes, of course, that he's the same type of being mm-hmm. as we are, but just in he has those attributes in greater measure. So you sure. take like power, for example, mm-hmm. um, he has power or omnipotence and and just a greater degree than we mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. But he's not fundamentally a different type mm-hmm. of being. When you mm-hmm. come to the Bible, Acts 17 or the book of Isaiah, it's everywhere mm-hmm. in Isaiah, you suddenly realize, no, God is, he's a different type of being entirely. He's not the creature. Mm-hmm. He's the creator. And that that sets a different tone. It puts him in an entirely different class than, than, what, uh, than, than us. And uh, it means that he is characterized by attributes that do not characterize us. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I would think that an example of that would be trying to map our understanding of love onto God without remainders. So that what would what we make us think of God as loving uh, would be something that's drawn just strictly from human relationships, complete with the emotion that might go with that in ways that would diminish God, or at least that's the risk. And it sounds like you're you're bringing that uh, to bear on this. Yes, love is a, a great example because it tends to be uh, one of the, the attributes that Christians love the most. Sorry mm-hmm. for the pun, but uh, it's, it's inevitable, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Well, yes, that's exactly right. If we think of love purely in terms of our human experience— uh, and then just assume, well, that's the same way that mm-hmm. love should be described of God, uh, we end up with this type of theistic personalism. Mm-hmm. However, uh, as much as there might be a correlation, uh, the love that defines who God is is not just a, a greater amount of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is qualitatively different mm-hmm. um, because God's infinite, he is love in infinite measure. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. it's a boundless, immeasurable love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a love that is unchanging, immutable. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at ourselves, I look at my own life. I think uh, my love grows and wanes. At one minute, mm-hmm. it's very flawed. The next minute, it's hopefully a little bit more holy. Sure. Uh, that's not the case with God. His His love is a holy love. It's an immutable love. It's a simple love. Uh, and it's a just love, it, it, and we could 
do that with all the attributes. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime we're talking about one attribute, uh, we we can't help but then uh, speak of the others as well. Sure, sure. It's it's it. There's no tincture of need in that love. There's no uh, threat of change in that love. Um, and that it, it, that's why I asked you that question about domestication, because it, it seems as though you were trying to say that the, the sort of natural tendency that we have, like water runs downhill, is to go in that direction unless we're continually challenged by Scripture to, to uh, yeah. move away from that with an openness to God surprising us uh, in certain senses. And I think in your, your uh, personal testimony at the beginning of the book, that was one of the themes, is that you're in some sense surprised by who God is having gone back in a more intensive way into Scripture to rediscover, if you will, uh, the character of God. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it seems like forever ago, but uh, long ago when I was uh, just a young young pup, uh, just very naive in, in many ways as I was yeah. uh, you know, entering into my college years. Um, I, you know, I, I was a Christian. I... Uh, read my Bible. I, I loved God. Um, the church I grew up in was very faithful to preach through the scriptures, but I, I'd never really been introduced to the deep things of God, mm -hmm. theology itself. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, uh, no one had ever introduced me to some of the great thinkers of the faith, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, an Augustine or an Anselm or a, a Thomas Aquinas or a John Calvin, and mm -hmm. you know the list goes sure. on. When I started to read these individuals, uh, I noticed, well, this is a very different mm -hmm. picture of God than, <laughs> yeah. than what I have heard in church. Uh, th or maybe I've heard good things in church, but this is a God that I've never even seen talked mm -hmm. about in church. Yeah. Uh, it, so I was very surprised, but pleasantly surprised, a little bit frustrated as to why, why, have, why have I never learned mm -hmm. about simplicity or why have I never learned about immutability or impassibility? I think as Christians, we have a general understanding of who God might be in terms mm -hmm. of just a, we, we might be able to identify something that, you know, that doesn't sound quite right. But I think for most Christians, we don't know how to actually articulate who God is and, and who he is not. I liked what you said a minute ago about love because, he, to just take love again, when we think about uh, love, how, how a Christian tends to think about love, we think relationally. Uh, right, that we love in a very needy way. Uh, so mm -hmm. maybe between uh, you and your spouse, um, you depend on mm -hmm. each other's sure. love even. But we have to be really careful, mm -hmm. don't we? Because if we then assume, well, mm -hmm. that's the, the same type of love that mm -hmm. we're going to attribute that to God, well, mm -hmm. all of a sudden we've made God a needy God, yeah. a, a God who's I don't know. I, perhaps he's before he's creating the world. He's he's sitting up there, lonely, yeah, twiddling his thumbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfulfilled in some way. Yeah. And I've heard mm -hmm. Christians talk mm -hmm. this way, mm -hmm. unfulfilled. And thank goodness he created us, uh, because mm -hmm. we then bring some type of fulfillment. That's a very popular understanding mm -hmm. of God in Christian circles. Well, in none greater, I, I argue, actually, that's incredibly unbiblical. Mm -hmm. uh, when you come to say. Uh, Paul, Paul's letters, for example, uh, Acts 17, or you know, this this apologetic uh, encounter that he has would be another example where um, he 
before he even gets to the gospel, he starts off with God's society and says, mm-hmm. God's, God doesn't need you. This is essentially right. what he's saying. <laughs> he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He is the creator. He owns all things. Mm-hmm. He, doesn't, he didn't have to create. He created you, uh, but he didn't have to create you. And then he works from there to, well, then what kind of grace can God give us? What kind of mercy has he shown us in Jesus Christ? We have to get that right. Uh, otherwise, and, and I try to show this throughout each chapter in the book, we then risk misunderstanding some of the practical implications, whether it's the gospel or the Christian life itself. Yeah, it seems like as I look at the book, it strikes me that it, there's a couple of very practical things that come out that stood out for me. There are many more that I'm going to mention, but one of them is the, the need to be very cautious in the illustrations we use in preaching to communicate who God is, because some of those can be just terribly unhelpful. They can, And as these things go, people who listen to our preaching, oftentimes it's the illustration they really remember, but of course, if it's not good, then they will remember the worst things about our sermon, the least biblical insofar as they're inaccurate. That's exactly right. I, preaching is uh, maybe the front lines for the doctrine of God. Uh, and I worry sometimes that pastors don't realize this or know this as they enter into the pulpit. But yes, the, the illustrations they use uh, can have a great effect or a terrible effect mm-hmm. on what uh, those in the con- congregation think about God. Well, we can talk about this later, mm-hmm. but you take something, an attribute like impassibility, for example, um, how many times in the pulpit have have we given the impression that uh, this God suffers just like you? Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's a suffering God. Uh, he he's a God who who is hurt. Mm-hmm. You're hurt. He's hurt. Well, that can have a, a very uh, persuasive re- and, and emotional um, mm-hmm. uh, effect on on us, and, and it can feel in the moment as though, oh yeah, that that resonates. That that's a re- that's a God I can relate to. But if we if we just pause and think through, well, if that's if if God really is suffering, if He is passable, and that, what would that mean then, mm-hmm. for for the rest of His character, for His for the rest of His attributes? Is this a God that really can help you in the end, or is this a God you're eventually going to feel sorry for? Mm-hmm. I it, it can it can lead to some mm-hmm. dangerous territory. Sure, it, it it suggests to us a God that is malleable, with the accumulation of words used in praying to Him. So Jesus warns about this in Matthew six that the the pagan will think that God can be sort of uh, pushed into a corner rhetorically by finding just the right kind of words or the accumulation of words. And the the suggestion is He's a deity not unlike those that would be uh, falsely worshipped, where the, the, the deities worship, they don't care about us, they do not know about us, they're needy, and therefore there's the expectation that if they do anything for us, it, it will be because we've somehow manipulated them, yeah. whereas God has no needs. Yeah. And he can't be manipulated. That's right. And this mm-hmm. is, when you read the prophets, they capitalize on this, mm-hmm. right? Because they are laboring to communicate to Israel, do, do not think that by offering that sacrifice, you somehow are going to manipulate God. And they go back to God's aseity, back back to his immutability, uh, back to his transcendence, his lordship, and on and on to, to convey to Israel, 
before you do anything in worship, you need to understand this this God is not like the gods of the nations that you you have been tempted to worship. He is altogether different, altogether greater. Sure, sure. Let me ask you about um, some of the implications of Anselmian perfect being theology. So we're thinking about Anselm of Canterbury, and I know that in your book you take Anselm's understanding of God as the being greater than whom none can be conceived as a kind of platform for thinking about God. And one of the things that I I see there is the idea that from this notion of God being the being greater than whom none can be conceived, that there's a sense in which certain perfect making attributes then would have to be a part of who we think of God as being. And I just wondered if you could kind of help us to think about that inference from God's being the being greater than whom none can be conceived to some of these attributes that actually appear in your book and are discussed. I, you know, there's many figures in the history of the church as I was writing this book that I, I return to, old friends uh, that I return to and, and just uh, found myself uh, just pouring over their pages once again. Anselm is one of them. And I think his, his insight here, and it, it's not, it, it's not just, and some alone. You, in fact, if you go back, you you see it in Augustine, yeah. as well, and you'll see it. You'll see it with figures like Thomas Aquinas and others. So it's not necessarily original to him, but Anselm gets the credit because he he really uh, brings it home. He he, mm-hmm. he really uh, makes a case for it, and that is uh, he he will say, well, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. This is a phrase he uses in different ways. Interestingly. Today, uh, we we tend to limit Anselm's insight here to debates and discussions over apologetics. Sure, the ontological argument. Yeah, yeah, the ontological Mm -hmm. argument. Does God exist, and and does this work as an apologetic argument? Well, that's a great discussion to have. However, if you go back and read Anselm, he's making this statement uh, with the purpose of talking about the being of God, the, the, Mm -hmm. the character, the attributes of God, not not merely for apologetic reasons. And when he says God is this perfect being, someone than whom none greater can be conceived, keep in mind, he doesn't just mean, as we just described a minute ago, he doesn't just mean, oh, God is God is greater than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he, he means, no, God is, what, when we say God is greater, he is a different type of being mm-hmm. than you altogether. He's not the creator. The creature. He's the creator. He's in a class of his own. Well, when Anselm says he's someone than whom none greater can be conceived, immediately that leads us to an attribute like God's uh, in- infinitude, his infinite mm-hmm. nature. Uh, so God is someone who can't be measured. He's immeasurable. He is. Uh, he, he's he's someone who can't be bound. Uh, he's boundless. Uh, he's someone who doesn't have limitations. He, he's limitless. His, his essence doesn't have restrictions in that sense. Well, if God is this infinite being, and there's all kinds of ways that um, the fathers and others have described this. They've said he's pure being, he's absolute being, he's mm-hmm. beyond all being. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's all kinds of uh, clever ways that they've they've articulated this. But if this this is true that for God to be someone than, than whom none greater can be conceived, it, that he is an infinite being, well then, if we stop right there, we'll realize that all of a sudden, any type of limitation that w- 
or creaturely mm-hmm. limitation that in some way we try to impose upon God, that it's not possible anymore. Uh, so, so think of a couple, and I discuss so many of these in the book, uh, God's aseity, that, that God is not dependent on the creature mm-hmm. or the created order. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. Well, this has to, th- this is one of those uh, perfect making attributes of this perfect being. It has to be because if God is dependent, that would impose some type of limitation. He would be needy. He would be uh, dependent on others for his, either his existence or his own fulfillment. Uh, or, or take another example, simplicity, mm-hmm. uh, the, the belief that uh, God is not made up of parts. He's not compounded or composed of parts. There's, there's no one that composes God even. Mm-hmm. Well, this too protects God's infinite being and perfect nature because if he has parts, then uh, it raises a lot of questions, right? Um, are these parts divisible in God? Um does this divide his essence up? Do they precede God in some way? Uh, do these parts morph or change? How do we explain unity? Well, no longer do we have a perfect being. And we could go on. I, you know, I just hinted at immutability. If God changes, then, then suddenly we have to ask, well, is he infinite anymore? Is he eternal anymore? Uh, is, is he changing for the better or for the worse? And if he's changing for the better, well, what was he before? <laughs> and if he's changing for the yeah. worse, there's something immoral happening yes. at, at this point. Mm-hmm. And you can see the mm-hmm. list, it, it just trickles down from there. Mm-hmm. So from this one statement, which it's, it sounds so basic, you know, that mm-hmm. God's this perfect being. I mean, who's not going to affirm that? But what Anselm is trying to convey and Augustine and, and Thomas, they're trying to convey, uh, it actually means more that if he's a perfect being, he must be infinite. He must be simple. He must be ase. He must mm-hmm. be eternal and on and on and on. We've been talking about the attributes of God with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and uh, we'll need to take a break just now for a few minutes to hear from our sponsor. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Welcome back to the Credo Podcast. I'm Thor Madsen. I'm interviewing Dr. Matthew Barrett, and we are talking once more about the new book that's coming out from Baker Books called None Greater, subtitled The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Yeah, It seems to build in among the other uh, consequences of the doctrine that there could be no, no factor that explains God. And once that's acknowledged, then there it sort of eliminates the um, the uh, objection to Christian theism that sometimes is made, which is, well, how do you know that there couldn't be more than one God? Well, by definition, you could not have more than one God if this if God holds this place as being unique and the ground of all explanation. 
that that word you you just use ground is really key isn't it because we're not just saying god exists we're saying he is the explanation he is the ground of all being uh, he in other words the only way we can explain explain the existence of everything else or even the qualities of anything else is because he is is the the highest good it's from him that beauty and goodness and morality all of this stems from him uh and it's only because he alone is the perfect being that we can even say that but yeah you're right if if he is the the perfect being then to to suddenly introduce another divine being uh another god uh, would would throw everything and in, in, in compromise everything it, now there would be a challenger uh and uh th- that would then mean there there's no longer a perfect being because someone else is is challenging that position sure they'd be self-contradictory in other words the assertion that there's more than one god given this understanding of god uh, that would entail a contradiction because he would have to be ultimate um, in that sense. You did mention um, some of the challenges to do with divine simplicity, that God is identical with the parts that he has, um, and indeed, or the attributes, I, I should say. Um, help us to understand how we can still talk about the attributes of God when he is going to be, in some sense, identical with those attributes. He's not a being who has attributes. He just is the attributes in perfect expression. And yet we do talk about these different characteristics that God has, like his power, his goodness, his knowledge. There's a tightrope that we have to walk in, in theology and trying to talk about God without suggesting that that he's a being who just so happens to have these characteristics for which he's worshipped. Yeah. Uh, help us to think through that, our, our way of talking about who God is in terms of these different attributes and different chapters, and yet we want to affirm his simplicity at the end of it all. It's very counterintuitive to the way that we think in our finite, creaturely manner, our minds, you know, because we are not simple beings. Uh, we are beings that are very much compounded, made up of parts. And so we, again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, you know, how, how do we even approach God? Uh, well, if we, if we project our own creaturely limitations, our own makeup uh, back onto God, we just assume, well, he must be the same way. And sometimes we, we make this assumption, maybe, maybe people make it in an innocent way, but because we talk about different attributes of God, we just assume, well, he must be made up of different attributes or parts in some way. But actually, I would argue just the opposite. Uh, if we really believe that God is one, uh, which Scripture affirms uh, from the beginning, if we really believe that God is one, uh, that that he is uh, one essence even, uh, then simplicity is just fundamental to what it means to believe in monotheism and what it means to understand the God of the Bible. He's not a God compounded, made up of different parts. Uh, he's a God who is, whose essence is undivided. Uh, it, it, it just simply is. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the different ways that the fathers described this. He's, he's pure act. He's pure being. They're assuming this in so many ways, that uh, this is not a God that you can you can divvy up uh, to put it colloquially, 
Well, that has huge implications because if if this is true, it that that affects how we then speak of all the attributes, right? It, it's difficult then to describe one attribute without then describing another sure. attribute. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, and we, we've done this even a little bit already. Uh, if simplicity is true, then it naturally leads us to a saiety, uh, mm-hmm. that, well, God isn't depending, he's not only not depending on something external to himself, it's it's also the case that he's not depending on on some some other parts within himself, as right. if he he's his essence is one thing, and then these attributes are another thing, mm-hmm. and we've got to try to figure out, well, how, do, how are these attributes over here going to, you know, relate to or help uh, his essence over here? Mm-hmm. No, his, his essence is his attributes, and his mm-hmm. attributes are his essence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can't we can't separate those, um, and and so that affects everything. I, when we talk about we, we were talking about love, it's an immutable love, it's a holy love, it's it's a it's a righteous love, uh, it's an eternal love. Um, and, and when we talk about uh, say we we talk about holiness, well, uh, this is an eternal holiness, and and on and on. Now. This can be difficult for us to understand because we, uh, we as finite individuals, our minds uh, have to, to think of one mm-hmm. attribute at a time. Maybe, maybe we're a genius and we can think of a couple at a time. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, for me, it, it, it's so overwhelming at times. I, I, you have to, to think of, of one in relationship to another one. It's difficult, isn't it, to, to then try to think of all of them at once, it, it's nearly impossible. Well, when we describe God in this way, we always just have to remember this is the one simple God that our finite minds are trying to, in some small way, articulate one attribute at a time. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean those attributes are, are different parts in God. Now, God is one simple essence, true enough, However, when we come to Scripture, uh, God accommodates himself to our finite, uh, finite minds, and he does that in, in, in so many ways. He gives us a plurality of names mm-hmm. so that his one simple essence is then communicated to us and described to us in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and again, even these names, are, are they're many, and, and uh, they, don't, they don't even capture the the infinite essence of God in, in just one name, for example. Um, but even in our own experience, right, this is something that we assume more or less, that there can be something can be singular, but uh, it can be revealed to us in, in a way that, has, that, that appears to be diverse. Um, the Puritans love to use illustrations, uh, since you mentioned them. <laughs> you take someone like Stephen Charnock, uh, one of the great Puritans, and he would uh, try to convey, you know, why is it that God's simple, and yet at the same time, we see in Scripture Him revealed in so many ways. And uh, he said, well, it, it's similar to a to to light entering into a, a prism, with with uh, say there's like a glass, you know, a mirror of some sort inside, in which uh, you know the the beam of light it it, it shines and, and it hits that prism. But then when it comes out the other end, how we see it, it, it can look like a rainbow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's we, we see it's re- mm-hmm. refracted. Yeah, mm-hmm. th- this is called refraction. 
Um, now, you know, we have to be careful. Every illustration is going to break down at some point. Mm-hmm. And it's not perfect. But the, his point is that even in our own experience, uh, we see diversity, and that helps us as finite individuals. That helps us uh, understand God better. But we have to always remember, uh, though we're talking about maybe one attribute at a time, we're still talking about the one simple God. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Just to, to use maybe one other illustration, again, this one's faulty too. It falls apart if you push it too hard. <laughs> but uh, my kids love to go to uh, the baseball game. Here mm-hmm. we have the Kansas City Royals. And, um, you know, if you, if you go to the game, maybe someone hooked you up with some stellar seats behind home plate. And uh, uh, what, what a great game it is to watch from that vantage point. You know, you're right behind mm-hmm. the umpire, right? You can see those pitches coming in so, you know, 90, 100 miles an hour and, you know, the, the runner sliding into home base. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the next week, you, you know, you've got to buy the ticket. So you're, you're out in, you know, the bleacher seats. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I sometimes ask my student, you know, is this two different games you're watching? And, and you know, maybe it's the same game and your friend's out in the bleacher seats and you're behind home plate. It, it's the same game. It, mm-hmm. Same players, same movements, and everything, all that, all that sort of thing. But you're you're you have insight from two different angles. Um, so even in our human experience, we we understand this. Uh, these illustrations fall apart at some point when if we you know push them too hard. But all that to say, when we talk about God, how gracious of Him to help us understand so many aspects of who He is. But we always have to remember this is the one simple undivided being that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Let's um let's talk uh, about some some of the attributes that um, we even know in our churches that people will have greater difficulty with. Just because at this point you're sort of facing the headwinds of very common understandings of who God is, and they're they're meant for all of the best of reasons. I mean, people sort of want to um, engage their understanding of God in the best way they can, but some of these doctrines, they, they hear them and they think, well, that can't be right, or it just strikes them as odd. And one of those that seems to be pretty common that, that people will struggle with is the idea of God's immutability, um, his changelessness. Um, people will read the scriptures, they'll think, well, it, it looks on the surface as though there is change. God is, you know, he's... Um, um, saying the things to the people of Israel than to us in the New Testament about what he'll do next and what he's thinking and, and his anger is there or it's not there. And there, at least on the surface, appears to be a significant amount of change. And, of course, we're sort of talking about the idea of Scripture revealing things to us in a way that points perhaps in the direction of immutability. But then again, the layman sees that and thinks, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it sure doesn't look like he's immutable. Um, how would you help us to think through that idea about God, his changelessness? Yes, it, it's it's very understandable because as a Christian, uh, you're trying to take, you know, you want to take Scripture seriously. You're, you're reading through maybe Old Testament narrative, for example, and um, it, it, as you're reading and, and as you're seeing, uh, you know, Israel experience certain things, um, they're be, they are receiving revelation. Uh, they are being told by maybe it's Moses, maybe it's the prophets, depending on what point it is. Uh, they're being told who God is, what He's going to do. How um, 
you know, they've acted in a certain way. What does that mean for, for, uh, for their relationship with God and their, the covenant with him? And so when we come to passages where it, it may say God repented or God relented or God was sorry, um, we, the, our tendency is, well, we want to take that seriously, so we're, we're going to read it very literal, literalistically. Mm-hmm. Um, I would push back against that and say, uh, th- this goes back to what we discussed at the beginning, um, we have to remember, well, what kind of revelation is this? Uh, what kind of communication is this? Well, this is, this is uh, the creator communicating to the creature. And so uh, that means that the communication is always going to be analogical rather, rather, than it, um, rather than it being univocal or equivocal. It's analogical, which means that, uh, and, and we, we should know this, we're made in his image, right? So, so that should tell us something. Uh, but it's analogical, which means from our knowledge to to the way that uh, we know God, um, we never know he he is an incomprehensible God. Remember, we said he's infinite. So he's incomprehensible to us. So how do we we know God as much as he reveals himself to us, but never exhaustively, uh, never comprehensively even. Um, and yet he's gracious to reveal himself to us in ways that that we can understand. So when we come to Scripture and we see uh, the biblical authors using using human traits or attributes to speak of God, we we always have to keep that qualification mm-hmm. in mind. I you know I, the one way to to get at this is when we're reading Scripture and we see say a prophet say God has hands. Or God has nostrils, <laughs> mighty outstretched arm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or you're the apple of His eye. We we never assume, do we? God has a literal eye, with an apple mm-hmm. in it. Or or God literally has hands and feet or nostrils. We would that would we would never assume that. We understand that the psalmist or the prophet is trying to convey a certain point. So you take uh, David's language. Oftentimes, David is trying to convey. When, when he speaks of, you know, God's eye or, you know, you're the apple of his eye or something like that, he's trying to convey uh, that you are God's specially chosen people. You have his covenant blessing and his favor. At other times, he will uh, speak of God's eye in a way that we, we, don't, we don't want to know, right? So God sees all things. doesn't mean God literally has eyes. What, what he's trying to convey it there is not even the wicked will escape God's judgment. Mm-hmm. He, he knows all things. Well, for some reason, uh, and this was really common, you know, about um, two decades ago when the open theism became mm-hmm. really popular, mm-hmm. they, they loved to go to passages that spoke of God relenting or repenting. And they say, oh, we, we, have, to be, we have to take the Bible in this way if we're really going to believe in mm-hmm. it. This literally means that <laughs> God made yeah. a mistake. Yeah. But then when they would come to passages, well, of course God doesn't have hands. Of course he doesn't have no one's nostrils. A purist on yeah. that. <laughs> no, no one's a purist. I, I'm thinking, well, well, what ju- what just happened? Is this mm-hmm. you know this just seems like this is inconsistent? Well, they're picking and choosing that sort of thing. All that to say, when we come to that type of language, is it anthropomorphic in some way? Uh, absolutely. Um, does it? That doesn't. That's not an excuse to say, oh well, it doesn't mean anything then. No, but it is to say uh, it's analogical in nature. Now, what does it mean then? Well, uh, we we shouldn't necessarily interpret it uh, literalistically, but it does convey something literally true about God, um, like we just saw. 
So you take, for example, uh, where where God's you know Saul is is just uh, going off the deep end. He's just atrocious in his behavior, and God rejects him as king. And you see this language that God is sorry that mm-hmm. He made Saul king. Well, how do we respond to this? I mean, did God make a mistake? Is 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 He moody? Uh, is He is He you know one minute pretty confident, and next minute realize what have I done? Uh, I don't think so. I think what's what's being conveyed here is is uh, w- from a human va- vantage point, what is what's the strongest language that we could use in our human experience to convey that this this is wrong, that this is not going to be accepted? Well, this is the language we would choose, right? That uh, this is a, a a sorry situation, and and we might say, I'm I'm sorry that I even uh, you know thought of you know whatever language we would use. We understand that type of language doesn't mean God's actually repenting or relenting or changing his mind or changing in his being. He is conveying in that situation, Saul, you you are no longer going to be king. That is how much your sin is unacceptable to me. That that is how hideous it is. Um, And, and, you know, in any given situation, we, we, the key here is to pay attention to the context, right? So, if you keep reading in that same passage, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, same chapter even, it's not long until Samuel corrects Saul when he's begging, mm-hmm. you know, please don't tear the kingdom from me. And what, is, what does Samuel say? God's not a man. Yeah. He doesn't change his mind. Right. Who, who do you think you're mm-hmm. talking to? This, you can't manipulate God. He, he, so there we, when we read it in context, we see, okay, God is immutable. Uh, he is impassable. He he is simple and eternal, and so then from that vantage point we say, okay, well then what does this language mean if it's not to be taken in a literalistic sense? Let's mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> think um, f- with us for a minute about um, sort of what you might call a suburb of Im- immutability, and then you you look at impassibility as being that kind of uh, a doctrine that sort of relates to that. Um, but there's a particular thing that God will say about himself under this larger umbrella. So God does not change, therefore he doesn't suffer emotions. But then you think about one particular apparent emotion, at least that's the way the, the, the Bible refers to this, uh, and that is God's jealousy. He'll say that about himself. And of course, many of us are familiar with Richard Dawkins' famous rant about God, that God is jealous and proud of it. You know, this this uh, very long paragraph in which he gripes about all the different attributes of God, as a matter of fact, in this book um, that um, called The God Delusion. And uh, But one of them I just simply point out is that he says, well, God is jealous and he's proud of it. So uh, theologian Richard Dawkins claims, I say that facetiously, but it does raise an interesting question and that is, what, what do we do about that particular statement about God when it, it seems to be like um, something he would forbid, which is coveting? In other words, the, they wouldn't be the same, but there's a similar feel to them. Um, help us to understand how we can think about God as being jealous while also recognizing, of course, he's not going to change, he's not going to suffer emotions, but, but somehow that's going to say something very important about God to us. You know, jealousy is an attribute that I think Christians really struggle with. They have a gut reaction against it. Uh, and 
this, there's all kinds of reasons for this. One of them is because in our culture today, we use the word jealousy in a way that uh, is derogative, negative, uh, sinful. It's a sort of a grasping idea almost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a uh, it's desperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, we think, you know, the, the, the ultimate example, right, is, when, you know, maybe we turn on the news, they say they'll describe jealousy when they're describing uh, some husband or, or boyfriend who's just like lost all control and like gone nuts and, and you know, ended up killing, you know, his girlfriend mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and so that's the type of jealousy mm-hmm. that uh, our culture despises. And for good reason, sure. for good reason, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but when that can, that can then create a lot of problems because then when Christians come to the Bible and everywhere it starts to use this language, God is jealous. His name is jealous. It's not just that he acts in a jealous way. He is jealous, Scripture says, in the strongest sense. Well, we, we immediately then uh, think, well, <laughs> how can this be? You know, this is... Is God immoral? Is he flying off the handle? Is is, is he just uh, this this God of rage who's out of control? And and uh, one minute he's he's all oh, be merciful, and the next minute he's he, he's changed his mind and 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 uh, has gone back on all his promises. Well, well, no, of course not. Uh, when Scripture describes the jealousy of God, uh, it is describing a, a commitment on God's part, uh, a commitment. Uh, to, to maintain, uh, to establish, to to preserve uh, exclusive devotion to himself, exclusive devotion to himself, and of course he does that be- because he's the perfect being. He's the only one who can who for if we did that we would be selfish, mm-hmm. right? He's the only one who can do that because he is the greatest being, and actually if, if he doesn't do this, he's he's not. It doesn't serve us any good uh, because he is the one that we're to worship. He's he's the the greatest good, the highest good, and so to not call attention to himself would actually harm us, not help us. Well, in that light, he has every right then to to demand this exclusive devotion in in our relationship with him, and he does so. Uh, we we see this with Israel, right? He does so uh, when some other God, some other nation is challenging that exclusive devotion to himself. And he knows uh, the disaster that, that, that type of uh, idolatry will lead to. So, but he doesn't just, this jealousy is not just for our sake. It's not just a jealousy that is for our good. It's first and foremost for his own glory. Mm -hmm. And so scripture will say, uh, again and again, you think of a book like Deuteronomy, um, that he, he does something for his own glory. You know, why did he save Israel? It's not because they're better than all the nations. No, he saved them for his own glory. For, mm-hmm. uh, so this is where jealousy then uh, starts. You start to see it on the pages of Scripture. And if we think of the best sense of jealousy, it's a jealous love. It's a love that is an intolerant love. Um, we, we tend to think today of, of uh, tolerance as, as really the, the, the primary virtue and anything that's ex- exclusive as, as just the ultimate sin. Well, that, that doesn't work when we come to, say, even our own marriage, marriage mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, do we really want to marry someone 
who's who's just going to be completely tolerant and not have any uh, they're just going to be okay with us committing adultery. Well, of course not. Uh, that that's dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. That we would question whether that person really loves us. They're not mm-hmm. jealous enough for us to to say no. I want you alone. Well, if that's true of us, I mean, w- when we come to, to to scripture, this is this is the perfect being. This is the infinite being himself. How much more then does he have a right to be jealous for his own glory, uh, for his own people? And he does that in a way that's holy. It's just. It's caring, it's compassionate to, towards us as sinners, as we see through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that to say, with jealousy, I think half the battle is just correcting misconceptions and understanding that as the perfect being, not only can he be jealous, but he should be jealous. And this is actually, uh, this is is not only for our, our good, but it it opens our eyes to just how great, how infinite, how, how beautiful this God is that we worship. Mm-hmm. What um, kind of as a final thought on that, it, 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 you know, there's a lot of details in the book and you're exploring who God is. What is the impact that this book would have on a person when they think about worshiping God? We'll just kind of wrap it up in thinking that way about it. I mean, imagine I'm in church and uh, there are times of, of preaching, there's singing of hymns and so forth. How would a book like this, you read this book, you, you understand God more, how would it change our understanding of worship? Well, it absolutely should change our understanding of worship. Uh, throughout each chapter in the book, uh, I take time towards the end or, or throughout to draw out the, the practical implications for the Christian life, to flesh out what, what does this mean for the gospel? And as I, as I was writing the book, and, and this is always the challenge, right? We're dealing with ideas and concepts. We're dealing with an infinite God. Uh, and this at times, this can feel very heady, uh, like we're up in the clouds, uh, which is one of the reasons why I loved reading the Puritans while, while I was writing, because they connected the dots so well, so directly between who this God is, this creator, who, uh, you know, to, to echo Jeremiah, there, there's none like him. Mm-hmm. Um, they connected the dots from from that to, well, what then does this mean for us, for our, for our Christian lives, for the gospel, for how we preach, how we worship? And the implications are endless. So, so take a couple of, of examples. Uh, immutability. If God changes, do we really have any assurance that the promises he has made in and through Jesus Christ will be will come to fruition will come true that they are secure that our identity in those promises in Christ Jesus that that it is secure i don't i don't think we do uh, what what guarantee can we have or, or take impassibility if 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 god is moody and he's changing he's fluctuating emotionally um, do we have any confidence, any real confidence that uh, this is a God we can trust? Uh, or is it a God that we're going to start feeling sorry for and wonder, well, does he need just as much saving as I do? Um, or you take or you take something uh, something like a saiety. Uh, God, God is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He doesn't depend on you. Well, it's only a God who doesn't depend on you 
uh, that, that can deliver a gospel that can save you. If God depends on you, well, then, then he, needs, he needs deliverance just as much as you do. Uh, no, we, we, need a, we need a gospel that, uh, that, that, is, that is given to us by God who, who doesn't, doesn't need us at all. Uh, only then is his grace free, unconditional. Uh, only then can he, can he offer it to us in a way that uh, he himself isn't, isn't reliant on us. Omniscience. Here's another one uh, that, that has serious consequences. Is God, it, it can sound attractive, right, to say, uh, will we somehow contribute to the plan of God? Um, if you think about that further, it, it, you know, th- does that mean then that, that we're adding to his knowledge uh, or his wisdom? Uh, or do we see in Scripture a God who, no matter what you're going through, no matter what hardship, no matter what trial, this is the God who knows all things because he decreed all things. This is a God uh, who, who knows the beginning and the end. He, he knows every hair on your head. He knows the minute you will die. This is a God that you can trust in, even, even in the worst of circumstances, because he's omniscient. Well, and I could go on, right? The, the, the implications here for Christian living are huge. And ultimately, the gospel itself assumes these attributes in so many ways. Um, it assumes them. The, the only reason that, that, that we can trust in a Savior like Jesus is because he is this God. He, he is, uh, even in his incarnation, he is uh, full deity. Uh, he, he is the Son of God himself. Uh, so from our Christology to the Christian life, uh, all of this depends on the character of God. All right. Well, the book is called Done Greater, subtitled The Undomesticated Attributes of God by Dr. Matthew Barrett. For the Credo Podcast, I'm Thor Madsen, and we thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.